Good evening and welcome here tonight to a very special 5 by 15 on the subject of rivers. We all love rivers. I'm an avid river swimmer and I try to swim in at least one river every week if I can. But rivers in this country have been suffering and staggeringly every single river, lake and stream which was recently monitored in England is polluted. As George Monbiot's Guardian investigation has shown, water companies and farmers are allowed to dump raw sewage as well as uh, pollutants from animal waste straight into our rivers year on year. And our rivers have turned from extraordinarily beautiful, wild, humming ecosystems all too often into dead zones which kill the fish, pollute the water and pollute the land. So what can we do about it in a situation where there's no effective punishment, no effective regulation? So I'm thrilled that we're, we're coming together tonight with George Monbiot, the award-winning columnist, author and activist, and with Franny Armstrong, the amazing environmental filmmaker who made The Age of Stupid. George and Franny collaborated at this time last week, and actually eight days ago, and they made an amazing film, which I urge you all to watch, called Riverside with a C. Now, Riverside took place entirely in the River Wye, and it was filmed live. Now, when you watch it, as I did, I found it quite impossible to understand how on earth they did it. Well, tonight you're going to find out, and you're going to find out all sorts of other things. So I'm really thrilled that tonight we're going to, apart from Franny and George, who will be opening the evening, we're going to be talking to Franny and her father, Peter Armstrong, another award-winning environmental filmmaker, about the process of making the film and how you can use films for activism. Then we're going to be talking to Karen Shackleton about the campaign that she has run to create the Ilkley Clean River, which is the only, only really good activism that has cleaned up a river. And finally, we will be then talking to, sorry, uh, to Nick Hayes, who has written, who is on a boat in Oxford at the moment, and he has written a book about trespass. So all in all, this is going to be a fantastic evening of activism, information, and at the end of the day, the deep love that we all have for our rivers and the understanding of their importance. And it's at that point on the question of the importance of our rivers that I'd like to introduce you all, although he doesn't need a lot of introduction as he's been at 5 by 15 a lot of times, thankfully, to George Monbiot. George, over to you. Thank you very much, Rosie. Well, first of all, um, just in case anyone gets themselves into as much trouble as I did, I should say that Franny Armstrong should come with a public health warning. <laughs> she should be made to wear a notice around her neck saying, if you come anywhere near me, you will be roped in, probably to something completely crazy. And only a few months down the line, you say, wait, wait a minute, whoa, how did this happen? Did I sign up for this? So, so when in, in the queue for the chippy in Dartmouth, she said, um, if we did a live investigative documentary, what would the topic be? The obvious answer should have been, hang on a moment, what do you mean we? But instead, like the sucker I am, I immediately responded, well, river pollution. That's the obvious answer. Yeah, river pollution. And so before I knew it, I got sucked into the maddest scheme I've ever been involved in. So Franny and Peter will, will explain just, I mean, how crazy and implausible this was. But I want to talk about why it is that rivers was such a compelling subject that I overcame what very little natural caution I usually possess, it's not a lot at the best of times, 
and signed up to this completely mad project. Now, it's, it's obvious when you think about it, but it's remarkable how little we do that almost all our life takes place in river valleys. The majority of us live in river valleys. Most of our economic activity happens in, in river valleys. Our lives are built around them in, in ways that we scarcely notice. They, they connect countryside to city, mountains to sea, people to nature. But even so, I think most of us, you know, we don't think about them nearly enough. And this forgetfulness gets exploited. Um, and we've recently become aware of just how badly the water companies have been exploiting it. The privatized water companies, which have given such lavish dividends to their shareholders, supported by 48 billion pounds worth of debt uh, taken out and just channeled straight into the pockets of their shareholders. Um, a lot of them registered offshore, held through all sorts of opaque structures, put in charge of our most precious resource, our water. And what do they do with it? Well, they cut their costs by um, diverting raw sewage effectively around their sewage treatment works rather than through their sewage treatment works and straight into our rivers. It's the most revolting, unbelievable habit, but they're able to get away with it because of the complete regulatory failure that this government presides over. And in fact, governments have done for quite a while. Pollution is a physical manifestation of corruption. When you look over a bridge, and instead of sparkling water and leaping fish, you, you see turds and sanitary products and, and all this other, literally this shit pouring down the river instead, this filthy, stinking sewer where once a beautiful river was, which unfortunately now is an all too common sight. You're seeing corruption. That's political corruption you're seeing. That's what cutting red tape looks like. That's in the Grenfell Tower. You know, they, they, they go on and on about how we're freeing people up, you know, just like they're freeing us from, 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 from lockdown. But actually what they do is they free the most exploitative companies to exploit us even further. So we gradually become aware of just how bad the water companies are and just how horrendously they are, are treating our beautiful rivers. But while that awareness has been growing, Something even bigger, even worse, has been happening, of which we're almost completely unaware. And it was because of that that I wanted to make this film and took this crazy leap into the dark. Um, because even the government figures, which don't tell you a half of it, don't tell you a tenth of it, show that the biggest cause of river pollution in this country isn't actually sewage, horrendous as that is, and much as we need to fight that disgusting habit. Um, it's not heavy industry either. It's farming. Now, when I say farming, what image comes to mind? Well, I bet for quite a few of you, at least fleetingly, there was a particular kind of picture flitted across your mind, the picture with which we are surrounded when we're very small children at the very dawning of consciousness, because a remarkably high proportion of books for very small children are about livestock farms, but not the kind of livestock farm that actually exists in you know, the real farm economy. It um, has like one cow, one horse, one pig, one chicken, one dog, one cat, perhaps a rosy cheek farmer, and they all talk together. They're all like a family, living like a family. And understandably, there's no indication of why they might be there, of what happens to them in life, of how and why 
they die. That would slightly spoil the bucolic idyll which is created by those books. Um, and when we take children to see a farm, we take them to see a, a petting farm or a play farm which, which tries to recreate that idyll, to reify that idyll, to, to make a reality of it. And so we come away and think, oh yeah, that's what farms are. So we actually have very little indication of the sort of places from which our food mostly comes. And it seems that the most intense and extreme cause of river pollution caused by farming comes from almost the polar opposite of the way that we see livestock farming, industrial livestock units. And as farms have consolidated these units, which really we should call factories because they're so huge, you know, they might house hundreds of cows, thousands of pigs, tens of thousands of chickens. They've been getting bigger and bigger with farm consolidation. And what we discovered when we made Riverside is something that really should have been obvious, but that somehow appears to have escaped the attention of the councils who grant planning permission for them and the regulators like the Environment Agency and Natural Resources Wales who grant environmental permission for them. But somehow they've missed the obvious fact that if you have a vast number of animals in a river catchment and you're stuffing them with food taken from a wide area of land like the soya grown in Brazil and Argentina, destroying rainforests, destroying savannas, destroying the dry forests there on a massive scale in order to feed livestock poured into the chickens, for instance, in the catchment of the River Wye, that the nutrients in all that feed will come out in their dung. And, and the dung is produced in such quantities that the catchment cannot absorb it. So farmers quite legally will spread this dung on their fields but the, the soil very soon saturates. It can't absorb all the nitrogen and phosphate and other minerals in that dung. So as soon as the rain falls, it washes it off the, uh, washes it off the land and straight into the river. And the effect is just the same as if the farmer had actually just taken a pump and pumped that shit straight out of their chicken shed or their pig shed or their cow shed and into the river, which incidentally some do. Um, but whether they do it responsibly, irresponsibly, legally, illegally, it gets into the river because there's simply too much for the catchment to take. But unbelievably, in assessing these planning applications, uh, neither the county councils in the catchment of the Y, or indeed many other catchments, but in the Y we're talking about Powys and Herefordshire, nor the regulators, because it straddles the border, it's Natural Resources Wales and the Environment Agency, take any account of the overall picture. They, they, they look at each application as if it existed in isolation and they don't take account of each increment of excrement. Oh, I've been wanting to say that a long time. Each <laughs> increment of excrement um, piling on top of all the other poo which is being produced and the extra effect that's going to have on the river. And so with remarkable speed, as these chicken units have been put up left, right and centre, because what we see now is um, a sort of special, like regional specialisation. So the River Y catchment has become the chicken unit, uh, the chicken capital of Britain. So these chicken factories are like popping up left, right and centre all over it. It's simply impossible for the land to hold the amount of dung they produce. That dung goes in the river, the, the, the nutrients in it stimulate these blooms of algae. You know, we hear of toxic tides at sea. It's a very similar thing. And so they have these microscopic algae, unicellular algae in the water column. 
uh, which turn the water this filthy opaque color uh, when, when, when they bloom, that shuts out the light, kills the beds of waterweed, particularly the water crowfoot, which is a keystone species. It's like mangroves in tropical seas. It harbors the, the insect life, the fish life. It's where things breed, where they shelter, and it just kills them. It just wipes them out. And then at night, as the algae respire, because they photosynthesize during the day, they respire at night, they draw oxygen out of the water column and the, the surviving animals in the water, the fish, the insects and the rest, they start to suffocate. And, and in, in some, sometimes they just get extremely stressed and sometimes they die. And similar things are happening around the country. And outrageously, they, we, we discovered that neither the county councils nor the regulators have any idea even how many chicken units have been built in the catchment, let alone how many chickens there are. And this was left entirely to citizen scientists, um, Alison Caffin and Christine Hugh-Jones, um, academic researcher and, and a retired GP, to discover roughly how many there are. But even they were hampered because unbelievably, you can build a chicken factory holding 40,000 chickens or a pig factory with 2,000 pigs in without an environmental permit. You have carte blanche to build it without even acquiring a permit. So they, they literally, no one has any idea exactly how many of these things are in the catchment because they haven't been officially mapped. The only mapping has been done by these brilliant citizen scientists who, whose work is augmented by other citizen scientists along the course of the river, taking samples, doing the monitoring, which Natural Resources Wales and the Environment Agency have completely failed to do. So now we have, you know, finally, the, these completely useless agencies coming forward and say, oh, maybe we ought to do something about it. Um, perhaps we should create nitrate vulnerable zones and things. Well, it can't do anything about it if there's simply too much poo in the catchment. You've got this permanent punami coming down the river. And, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about that unless you close many and perhaps most of the units which have already been given planning permission. And in fact, when, when I pressed Leslie Griffiths, the um, uh, Welsh Minister for Rural Affairs, you know, who bless her, came on the programme, unlike her English counterparts who were too chicken, when I pressed her to um, uh, on this point, she, she conceded that if necessary, she would look into closing some of those factories, which I think is a big deal, a big step. Um, and you know, broadly speaking, we, we just can't carry on like this. We can't, you know, we, we, we get almost all our meat, almost all our milk, almost all our eggs from factories like this. And everywhere, all over the country, they are killing rivers. Wherever there's a concentration of them, rivers are dying. There's broadly speaking an east-west divide in the east of, 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 of Britain. It's mostly sewage, which is killing our rivers. In the west of Britain, it's mostly manure that's killing our rivers, but that's where the meat, milk, eggs that we're all eating are coming from. Now, it's, it's no answer to say, well, maybe we should go for free-range extensive livestock instead, because all you're doing there is swapping an incredibly cruel and polluting industry for one which might be slightly less cruel, but occupies far more land area, which could otherwise be occupied by nature, and produces more greenhouse gases. I mean, fundamentally, we've just got to cut down and ideally stop eating animal products. And at the same time, press for proper control of this industry and for it to be downsized to the point 
where our rivers and indeed other ecosystems can cope with it. But if we can do that, and if we can deal with the sources of pollutants and stop all this shit pouring into our rivers, they can recover with extraordinary speed. And uh, amazingly, there's a great example of this in the middle of London, with the Wandle Brook that flows from the bucolic uplands of Croydon um, down to Wandsworth, where it joins the River Thames. In 1805, it was described as the hardest worked river in the world. At one point, it had 90 mills along its length, pouring their mordants and dyes and um, disgusting industrial chemicals into the river because it was one of the centers of the textile industry. In fact, even William Morris and Liberty slightly undermining their, um, their, 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 their lovely um, flowery and, and eco-friendly image were pouring mordants and dyes and bleaches into the River Wandle. It was completely dead. Now it's got trout like this living in it. It's got kingfishers. It's got this rich ecology because people, uh, local people have gone to great lengths um, to restore it, to bring back populations of wildlife, to get it meandering again, rather than all being just canalized down concrete drains. And it's a beautiful river which local people love and enjoy and play in and splash about in, paddle in, and even fish in. They fish for trout in there in the middle of London. It's a quite extraordinary thing going on. And it's, it's one beautiful example of how rivers can spring back to life if only you let them. We have to stop the shit flooding down our rivers. We have to ensure that the, that the regulators do their job. They actually do monitoring and enforcement and prosecutions where people are blatantly breaking the law and penalties arising from those prosecutions, which would be a total novelty because there haven't been any since the farming rules for water were brought in in 2018, despite hundreds of known breaches and thousands of undocumented ones. But fundamentally, they've got to do the sums. And they've got to say, you know, if there is a certain amount of nutrients in the catchment, that river is dead. You know, they sign the death warrant when they give planning permission to those units. And whatever happens after then, that river is dead until those, river, until those units have been closed down, those livestock factories have been closed down. And you know, it's time we took back control. And it's time we restored and rewilded our beautiful rivers and turned them back into places of sparkling water where fish leap and kingfishers dive and otters cavort and indeed we cavort. Let's, let, let's bring them back to life. Let's put these destructive industries back in their boxes and let's ensure that as they should, they belong to us and we belong to them. Thank you. Thank you, George. That was absolutely fantastic. An extraordinary amount of facts. Um, I saw the, uh, the fine that was given to Southern Water for discharging sewage into the sea. And the boss of Southern Water, when asked why they did it, he said, because it saves money. It was quite chilling. And then he got hit with a 90 million pound fine. But personally, I think someone should start going to jail because as you said, these are multi-million pound companies who can afford the money. Um, but it was very, very blatant to admit it. So you said you had a, crazy time making this film so let's now talk to the filmmakers 
Franny Armstrong, who, as I said before, made The Age of Stupid. And she also made the amazing McLeibel film. Franny has been awarded many, many prizes and indeed been voted as one of the 100 most influential people in the country. She's a leading environmentalist. And indeed, she lives on a river, on the River X, where I've been lucky enough to go swimming. And she worked with her father, Peter. And Peter himself has done many live uh, films and coverage of the different climate conferences. He has been awarded a lifetime, a BAFTA Lifetime Achievement Award for contributions to interactive media. And the only other person who ever got given that was Tim Berners-Lee. So it's quite an accolade and it's fantastic to have you both. Um, so can I start, Franny? I mean, what was the idea behind making a live film rather than something that you recorded over a number of days? Well, I think, firstly, it is what you just said, the number of days. With my films, it's never a number of days. It's always a number of months or years. In fact, usually four or five years. And um, when I first heard about the river crisis um, from George's uh, column in The Guardian, but also other things, I just, I, you know, I thought this is, this is such an urgent crisis. I haven't got time to spend five years making a film. So that was part of it, the speed. The second thing was, was because we can. Um, you know, the technology suddenly arrived that anybody can live stream. You know, you, it used to be only massive corporations with their big satellite trucks could do this. Suddenly we can do it with iPhones. And so that was that was irresistible, the fact that we could. Um, but then, but most of all, um, it, it, my reason was um, because I'm so bored of environmental documentaries. I'm not bored of them, but they're just so bleak. There's so many of them. They're all telling you it's all a disaster and it's all doom and you come away from all of them feeling absolutely awful. And I just felt like if we did it live, it might add an extra element of jeopardy mm. and excitement <laughs> and involvement, engagement for the viewers. So it's not such a, a bleak experience, basically. And so people would want to watch. That's what that's what I was that's what I was hoping. Well, I think that that absolutely worked. I mean, I found myself fascinated that George was in a canoe and he was able to glide along the river and pretty much every time the right person would be standing on the bank for George to talk to. So, Peter, how, why did you get involved in this? What's it like collaborating with your daughter? It's been going on for a very long time. We've made a lot of films together and discussed a lot of what new media is like. And... Um, for me, it's been a long journey. As you said, I've been covering the, the COPs live as much as we can with the One World Organization, which I set up with my wife, Anna Rather. And the more recently, we have Empathy Media, which again, is about citizen journalism. It's mm -hmm. ordinary people saying, we don't have to wait for the BBC to cover this. We don't have to wait for newspapers owned by who knows, by billionaires to cover it. We can start covering this because the equipment is now makes that possible. Now, Franny mentioned the iPhone. So, you know, this is now my secret, my secret weapon, as it is for more and more people these days, because if you think about it, it is absolutely extraordinary. It's a camera, it's an audio recorder, it also transmits the picture, it also has its own power, it's also stabilised with this gimbal, it's also able to send back the result, it's a monitor, so while I'm filming I can also see the programme as it goes out. Imagine what you, how you would do this in a normal broadcast setting with a huge um, steady cam, a massive scanner, loads and loads of people, huge amounts of money. But above all, you're controlled. You're controlled by a corporation or you're controlled by the BBC and they have gatekeepers and they tell you what you can say and what you can't. So we want citizen journalism 
because I'm going on a bit, but media basically is so crucial to democracy. If ordinary people are not getting the truth about a situation like the rivers, then how can they make a, take a vote which is actually informed and, and, and makes sense? So citizen journalism for people, made by people, without the gatekeepers and with the new technology is what something that Anne Rather and I have been working on. So when Franny talked about this, we had some early meetings, just the four of us, George, Nicholas Kutcher has done the brilliant research on this and was the co-producer, Franny and myself. And at every meeting I said, well, to be honest, it's 50-50 whether this is going to work. I mean, whether this will stay on the air actually for more than an hour, given the internet, given that we're out and about, given the state of the technology. If I was a television company, I'd say 50-50 is your, your best and it's bound to come off the air. And every time I said it, Franny said, oh, and didn't I mention we're also going to do it on a boat? Uh, oh, oh, it's going to be in a car. Oh, and we want live drones. <laughs> so every time this kept adding to the risk, we then brought in more and more people with their expertise, which was brilliant. Professional people who were prepared to say, well, I've always done it this way with this hugely expensive technology, but now I'm prepared to be flexible. Let's see if we can make it work in this new way. And bless them, they did. And by some miracle, <laughs> it actually worked on the night, which I wouldn't have given money on it working, to be honest. When we did the rehearsal the day before, it didn't work. I have to tell you, um, I mean, it partly worked, but not very well at all. And even on the night, the little things went wrong. I winced every time. But every time Franny went wrong, things went wrong. Franny said, that's great. That's what people will remember. That'll go viral. <laughs> so uh, it was hair raising. I'm delighted. Well, to you, well, you did it. So Franny, tell me technically how you did it. I mean, you must, you had 12 mobile phones. Is that right? And you must have had an incredibly tight script to know where <laughs> everyone was meant to be or not. It would have been good if we'd had a tight script. I mean, the, the big lesson for me is that we just needed more days because we, we did the rehearsal, as my dad said, the night before, and that was two and a half hours long of just full of mistakes and technical problems. And so that night, the three of us, Peter, George and I sat up um, and just cut out a third of the script and also changed the route. <laughs> So the route that the kayak took and the route that the car took. And so George himself never even hadn't even done the route. I, I and, the, and the crew, we, managed, we did the route in the afternoon beforehand. So George hadn't even done it. So the most important thing next time would be to um, uh, have some more days so we could actually have a, some, run, some proper run throughs. Um, but in terms of the technology, I was doing camera A on George, which is just an iPhone. I, I would show you, but I'm using the iPhone now to do a live webinar. Um, and uh, about three, four, uh, four cameras, I think, in all. And then a sound man, and he had two mobile phones. George had two microphones on him, going to two uh, mobile phones mixed, also with a boom mic. And then all the other different people, uh, the contributors, um, they would have radio mics, um, all going, sending the signals by two mobile phones. So they're on different uh, networks, one on EE and one on Vodafone. So if one went down, the other would hopefully work. <laughs> If they went down, then George on his headphones, he had a microphone there as well. So that was the third backup. Because if, if you couldn't hear George, that's it, end of, end of show. Um, and all of that information was going to my dad uh, and this other guy, Vlad, who was our live visual mixer uh, in, a, in a room kindly lent to us by the Hay Festival. I think you helped us get that, Rosie. <laughs> and um, kindly donated. And so all of that information was coming into them. They were live vision mixing it, adding in all the uh extra videos and graphics and stuff like that and um 
that's how it works. <laughs> Bloody hell, that's just that's just amazing. Um, it, as I say, when the watching of it felt very, uh, very seamless. So, I mean, George has said about the real problems with the why, but why did you pick the why out of all the rivers? Why did you not do it on the X right by where you lived? Well, just because the why brought together all the problems, as George was saying, um, I think people it's quite well known now about the sewage problem. There was a fantastic panorama earlier in the year. Um, but the why uh, was about the other problem, which people don't know so much, as George explained earlier, about the farming. Um, and so we thought that, that that river encapsulated the whole story. But then, of course, we went to other people on other rivers, like Fergal Sharkey um, on his river, wherever that is, and other people at their river in Oxfordshire. Um, yeah. Can I just um, say something about the, the script point that you made, Rosie? Yes, please. There was a very significant change here that it was not controlled from the centre. Normally you have a script and the director sitting in a scanner. In this case, the person running this was George. It's like a, a concert where it's conducted from the keyboard. Where he decided to walk, where he decided to turn, Franny would follow and we in the, in the quotes control room would try and follow the action as much as we could. Position the drone, pick up the pictures and so on. So it was absolutely conducted from the keyboard, which is I think a new way of working. It caused some problems, we're only still learning how to do it. But the other point I wanted to just make was, this was not just a technology box of tricks. The whole point was, did it, what did it add up to? It, it wasn't just for the fun of it. Did it add up to a coherent message that was really powerful to the audience in a way which not doing it live wouldn't have, wouldn't have worked? And the evidence I got from my wife who was watching it and rather with a local eco, her local eco group, she said that the immediacy, the roughness and the sense of risk of things mm. that go wrong, met, put it into the present tense. It's now we're engaged. It's for us too. We can do things. What should we do? So there was a, a sort of a strange, um, a strange magic about it, which we, we almost didn't expect, but it was worth all the pain to achieve that. I absolutely agree with you, and I thought it was very significant when you you produced the cardboard cutout of Sir James Bevan, the Environment Agency's CEO for Wales, and it was absolutely a feeling that he's not here now when everybody else is here now. And, you know, he couldn't even be bothered to do a sort of pre-record. He was just this, um, you know, like, like they did on Have I Got News For You, the tub of lard, but you had that cutout. So, Franny, did you ever hear from him? Well, um, Nicola, our, our co-producer, she was in touch with his, his people um, beforehand. Um, and, uh, you know, we weren't expecting him to come on because he, he'd already not appeared on the Panorama and on the Channel 4 News. Um, but, you know, from my point of view, he's paid, I think it's, it's about £200,000 of public money uh, to protect our environment, you know, and, our, and there's a crisis in our environment, mm. in the rivers, which is a key mm. part of the environment. Why, where is he? Why is he not coming up and, and being accountable? You know, <laughs> it's, to me, it's, it's mind-boggling. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I mean, the cardboard cutouts, I think they made a very good point, but really, um, you know, where is he? Where are these people who are, who, you know, their job, their very, very well-paid job is to protect the environment. So, you know, we need to hear from them. Yeah, well, I thought I thought you made the point unbelievably strongly. And uh, Peter, you included some that devastating bit of footage about that, uh, I don't know what you call it, I mean, some poisoning event in the river that caused all those fish to die. And it was quite extraordinary to see live fish gasping for oxygen. How did you figure out where to put that in? and? Tell, tell us a bit about it. 
well, it fitted into the story that Emily had, had what confronted her that day, and she could she could hardly believe it, and the emotion was very strong in that interview. Um, she took had the foresight to actually take some pictures, and then a friend of hers who was a filmmaker came the following day and did the underwater footage, which we then put together, and George uh, explained the background. So it was a uh, it was. I kept saying to Franny, do we really need to drive in the car all the way to Emily's house? It's adding another huge problem. We'll lose the signal. We'll have to have an open dock car. She said, no, no, that's a, that is a key part of the story. That's how bad it can be, an, an acute an event like that. So I'm glad we covered it. And uh, I think it, it meant that the, um, the um, authorities responded at least to some extent and realised that they should have been there. Yes, well, that was obviously the, the, the sting in the tail of all of that was her attempting to phone the Environmental Protection Agency and them not getting there, Franny. Were you, were you were, what did, how did you reveal that through the story? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I love this new format uh, and I've just about recovered adrenaline-wise. Like a week later, seriously, it was so stressful. It was only, only having a baby has been more adrenaline. <laughs> it's, it was, anyway, but I have just about um, recovered. But, you know, the only thing that um, is slightly uh, I'm not yet fully on board with is that, you know, as the director, you can't con exactly control the film. And normally when you make a film, you're agonizing over every second and you make it absolutely perfect and you make your points so perfectly and you, you know, commission bits of animation to make it, you know. And with this, it's just like it was a bit of a like <laughs> vomit at the screen. <laughs> And we had all the elements. And so, you know, if we were to ever do another one, I think there would be a lot more rehearsing going on and a lot more getting the uh, the footage exactly in the right place and and me editing it further in advance, not not the morning of as well. Um, sorry, I've, I've forgotten what your question was. Well, no, no, the question was about the um, about that bit of film and about the fact that the Environmental Protection Agency, despite her telephone calls, did not turn up. And when they did turn up, the whatever had caused the death of these fish had sort of moved through the river. So they were unable to source it. Is that, yeah, is it that was the, That's right, yeah. It's National Resources Wales, uh, not, not the Environment Agency, because it's in Wales. But I mean, they came on the show, which was very um, uh, good of them, unlike mm -hmm. their English counterparts. Um, and they, you know, they just said it was, they were, they were unable to get there because they didn't have enough staff. But I don't know why they won't say what you know, the obvious thing that they've all had their budgets slashed by austerity. Um, one of them by half and one of them by three quarters, I think it was. I might be wrong on that number, but absolutely slashed. How can they do their jobs when the government has taken away all their funding? You know, they haven't got they, they, they couldn't send a person there because there wasn't a person to send because the person was on another job. Um, and, you know, if they if they still had their budget, you know, if somebody else was in power, <laughs> If yeah. we had another government, then you know we wouldn't. They'd have a budget and they'd be able to do their job. But they won't. They won't say that. Um, so I suppose we can all we can all ex work try and work out why they won't say that. So Peter, just before we move on to talking to Karen, um, are you about to embark on any other projects like this? Absolutely. We've got um, ongoing work with Extinction Rebellion, which is really, really making groundbreaking use of exactly this technology through FLAD, who we work with here, and a lot of other people, Zoe. So we'll be doing more of that. And then we're building up towards the, the COP in Glasgow. So we've got a big thing called, uh, which is uh, happening on TikTok and on Twitter with the school strikers. And it's called uh, My Bit, Your Bit, in which the young people are challenging in very <laughs> short old TikTok videos, the, the uh, decision makers in Glasgow. Look, I'm, I'm acting on this. 
what are you doing? So we're promoting that is turning into a huge display, a huge planet-sized display of all the videos, which will, and the young people will pop out from that as the delegates walk past, I hope in the morning, if it's agreed, it's half agreed, as the delegates by a young person will come on and say, look, I'm committed, what, what are you doing about this? So that's our next big challenge. And Franny, what, what, what's been the result of Riverside and what do you want to see happen? I'm going to come back to you, you and George at the end to ask was, what one can do. I was going to, I was going to say, ask. I think we should ask, ask George that question. Can I just well, say I, something? No. Can I say something else entirely different? Yes, you can say something else entirely different. We'll come back to George and you at the end on that. Yeah, go on. I was just going to say, picking up with from my dad, and also what I was saying earlier about um, that I'm bored of environmental documentaries. Um, I'm try I'm doing a climate comedy at the moment. I did one last year with um, Jonathan Pye. In fact, it was two years ago, mm -hmm. called Pie Net Zero, and we're now trying to turn that into a uh, not uh, uh, an ongoing comedy because, again, I just think we need other ways of get of getting these messages to people. Um, the, the the documentary. Well, yeah, there's still loads of great documentaries being made. Don't make, get me wrong, but you know, I've done it for 25 years, and now I'm I'm, I'm moving into comedy. <laughs> good, good. Well, we look forward to that, and we'll catch up with you again later on. But now I'd like to just chat to Karen Shackleton, who is behind the Ilkley Clean River Group. Um, Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you've, you've managed to turn a river, I mean, much like George was talking about the River Wandle, you, he, you've been able to turn your river around. So tell us the story of how it happened. Well, I was contacted by a friend of mine who's an angler and what he was finding, he was finding things like sanitary towels, wet wipes and things like that on this fishing line instead of fish, there were no fish. So he'd gone to find out what was happening and found that when it rains, the raw sewage, instead of going into the sewer system, just gets discharged into the river. So I went to have a look and I was absolutely horrified to see the river that I've grown up swimming in, playing, paddling, was just full of sewage and, and it was it was horrendous until you actually see it with your own eyes it's horrendous so I'm part of the Wafdale Naturalist Society and, and, and I went to the committee and I said well this is happening we're the Wafdale Naturalist Society we should be doing something about it and they turned around and they said well it's allowed by the Environment Agency it's legal there's nothing we can do about it. And, and, and I thought, well, it might be legal, but to me, it's wrong. Um, so I went away and um, I got together a team, uh, Becky Malby, who had run a campaign on saving the Ilkalido from closing down. So she knew how to run a campaign. And I knew Rick Batterby, who's a world-renowned professor in water ecology and done a lot on acid rain and things like that so i got i got those together with the fishermen as well and we formed ilka clean river group so we held several town meetings pulled in yorkshire water the environment agency ilka town council got on board and we um set up a citizen science water testing program to look at the levels of pollution in the river and this has never been done before right. and because the river is a flowing what goes up what goes in at the top comes out at the bottom just testing one point wasn't really going to be effective so we had points right along the whole of the river wharf run by lots of volunteers because by this time 
everybody along our river from sort of the source to the use at York were beginning to realise how badly polluted our river was and they were all wanting to get involved. So we tested it on one day from the top to the bottom um, to look at sources of pollution. And we also, because we'd had several town meetings where a lot of town people had, had come to the meetings because they were horrified at how much sewage was going into our river because nobody had any idea this was happening. We, we pay our bills. We expect our sewage to be treated. Mm -hmm. As it says in our water bills, we don't expect it to be fly tipped into our local river when we're paying for a service that we don't seem to be getting. So everybody was horrified and um, we called the environment agency in and they said, oh, well, it's only happened, it only happens about 42 times a year. <laughs> so we set freedom of information up to Yorkshire Water and we found out actually it was nearly 200 times a year amounting to a number of hours equating to about 114 solid days worth of sewage going into our river. So at this point, the Environment Agency recognised there was a problem. It was outside the terms of the Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive that says this should only happen in periods of extreme and prolonged rainfall conditions. And, you know, 114 days a year isn't, you know, <laughs> It's regular and monotonous mm. sewage pollution. So um, they said, yes, you, you do have a problem and we will sort of set the investigation programme to, to look at an upgrade of the sewage system. Well, this works on a five-year rotating basis. And they said, well, now you're looking at getting this done in about between 15 and 20 years. So... <laughs> We, we weren't going to sit back and accept that. So we, we, we got together and by this time there was me, there was Becky, Rick, town councillors and other people that had got on board and we, and, and we sort of had a bit of a brain bashing session to see what we could come up with to get a more imminent cleanup of our river. And Steve Fairburn, his partner, came up with the idea of applying for bathing water status. And now there are plenty of these on the coast, and this triggers a cleanup so that people who are swimming, paddling, playing aren't swimming in sewage. Um, and it's quite a complicated process because what you have to do is you have to write to DEFRA tell them that of your intent before the bathing water season starts. You also have to get permission from the landowner, which in our case was Bradford Council, which luckily they were really on board because of the amount of publicity that we generated by this time and they wanted to clean the river up. And you also have to count people using swimming, paddling, playing in the river throughout the whole of the bathing season, which is, I think, between May and September. So it was quite a task. And um, we pulled together nearly 100 local volunteers who were counting people paddling, playing and swimming in, in the river two or three times a week throughout the whole of the summer. So it was quite a task. Um, and on some days, there were about 1,700 people we counted one day paddling and playing in the river, which was potentially contaminated 
with raw untreated sewage and in fact we've got quite a lot of people contacting us saying how ill their children have been after being swimming in the river and of course doing the citizen science test that we've done the, the, the it showed very clearly there were high levels of E. coli in the river um, and and obviously when you've got children and families playing and swimming in there it's it's not ideal <laughs> um, so yes it, it was it was it was quite a struggle because you're getting people to do something that they've never done before. Bradford Council had certain impetus on them to put up signage to advise people what the water quality was. It would mean the Environment Agency would have to come and test the water each week to see how much E. coli or sewage was in the river. Um, so we came up some we, we had a few barriers to break down and it took a lot of doing but eventually DEFRA did grant us that bathing water designation now here in Ilkley we're the first river in the country to get that there's possibly I think there's 30 odd in Germany 70 odd in Italy and 570 odd in France and yet here in the wow. UK there's only one river in the country with this designation Golly, Karen, that is absolutely the most amazing story that you had to go through all of that. So um, did they did they build a new sewage works to stop? Where did the sewage go? Well, obviously, this has only just happened this year. So what we're doing now is we're working with Yorkshire Water, the Environment Agency, and rather than just um, testing our spot on the river, we're now actually working in the catchment as a whole because what a lot of the water testing has shown up that the the tributaries because there's not as much water in them and like George says you've got farming pollution and, mm -hmm. and things like that running off into a tri tributary which hasn't the volume of water to dilute the pollutants going in there and it's the tributaries where all the fish and the trout all go to spawn and that's what's killing our rivers. So we're now on a big program. Um, a regular, we're going to re redo the water testing citizen science that you can find on our website, your uh, Ilka Clean River Group's website, which has all the results of that on there. Um, and so we're now working as a catchment as a whole throughout the whole of the wharf to clean up the river as a whole. So we want to set the precedent. Mm. For the rest of the country now people have realized they can do this other people are wanting to apply for this designation and we want to be the example and set the bar high so that we're the one to aim for um, and obviously that's not going to happen overnight there's a lot of work to be done you're probably talking 20 30 years before we, we but but it is worth doing rather than just cleaning up one point and there is going to be investment in the sewage treatment at Ilkley. We're, going to, we're looking at UV disinfection, we're looking at phosphate stripping, we're looking at um, runoff from Ilkley Moor and, and holding back the rainwater, how we can implement suds in the town to stop the water getting into the sewage system which triggers the sewage going into the river rather than the sewage treatment works. So there's, there's a lot of work going on in Ilkley with Friends of Ilkley Moor, 
Bradford Council and all the agencies to tackle this and to really get it sorted out and, and, and be a national example of what can be achieved. Well, that's really for that's others. Really, that is so fantastic. So if someone wants to connect with you, they can find you through um, typing in the Ilkley Clean River Group. Yeah, we have a website. It explains the process. We've got how to do, how to apply for the water status and all our that's results for the water testing. Last question. Um, it sounds like that the, having the council on the side is crucial. Well, I actually, the first person I approached with this and, and what I did was I took down, I took pictures of where the sewage had come out, where all the sanitary towels and the tampons and everything were on the riverbed where children were playing. I took it to the town councillor, Mark Stidworthy. He was horrified and he was the one that called in the agencies to find out exactly what was going on and how we could come together and, and, and stop this because we're, we, we've got the iconic Ilkley Moors, we're on mm -hmm. the edge of the Yorkshire Dales National Park, we're a spa town yep. and yet we've got people coming here, visitors with their families picnicking, playing in a river that's con potentially contaminated with raw human sewage and it's just a totally unacceptable situation. Well, it is totally unacceptable and I can't congratulate you enough. It's a fantastic story, which we need to publicise everywhere, that citizen action can really make a change. I, I hope that you're wrong about how long it's going to take to clean up this river, because it seems to me that a lot of, you know, when you look at rewilding and things like that, that actually, when you stop, nature has an amazing ability to bounce back and bounce back quite fast. So, Karen, thank you very, very much for sharing that story. And um, people, anyone who's out there listening or anyone who picks this up online later, um, do get in touch if you think you can do that with your local river, because we can all make a difference. Now, our next speaker is joining us from a boat. He's, uh, he's near Oxford and he's on the river. And it's Nick Hayes, who's the author of the book of Trespass. But Nick is also a wonderful author, illustrator, printer and political cartoonist and he's published four graphic novels and has worked for the Literary Review, the British Council, the New Statesman and the Guardian. The Book of Trespass is a Trespasser's Radical Manifesto. Um, I've already asked Nick but I'm going to ask him again. I thought that once you were in a river you could kind of stay in a river if you didn't touch the banks but I think that I'm sadly I'm, I'm wrong so Nick over to you in your boat and thank you so much for joining us. Cool thanks so much for having me on I really appreciate it and uh, Karen your story is by far the most inspirational uh, thing that I've heard um, in decades basically so um, and uh, th there are many groups as well that uh, we're working with that are making sure that we do just use the templates that you've got on your website the masses of resources and just like real bog standard how to get this done kind of stuff like we're we're literally using them so thank you very much for that um and this whole thing about access to rivers um you know when when land was privatized in england uh when the commons were enclosed we didn't just lose our right to uh collect firewood or to you know take our cows and pigs that we don't have anymore uh to pasture um, we lost our right to protect the environment, the commons that existed before uh, the exclusive ownership of property uh, brought in by William the Conqueror almost a millennia ago. Um, 
what they did, they, they made sure that there was this kind of paradigm of power, this kind of uh, uh, sustainability, this reciprocity. You had rights to the land as long as you owed it, your responsibility and your care. Uh, and when we were fenced out of our land, of course, the responsibility, the stewardship, the care of it all uh, just went to the landowners. Um, and, you know, cynics would say they, uh, they sort of uh, sacrificed certain elements of stewardship for uh, masses of personal profit. Uh, and that was the story, uh, well, from the Middle Ages onwards, basically. Um, but I want to, I mean, it's almost a year ago uh, today when uh, I sort of had to begin the publicity circus for the book. The book came out in August. Um, and uh, yeah, it was about a year ago, it was me and this in, in extremely eminent uh, Sunday Times journalist who I think had just come from interviewing Hillary Clinton, was now sat on a, a, a train with me in a, in a blue shirt and some chinos and we were going kayak trespassing together on the River Loddon. And I was sat there thinking, God, this reminds me of um, back in the 90s when I was growing up, they always used to do uh, competitions. You know, if you win this competition, you get to spend a day with Duncan from Blue. Uh, and here we are now. Uh, I've got to sort of entertain this journalist and he's coming his chinos and we're going <laughs> into a, you know, river uh, muddy with goose shit. I just wasn't sure how this was going to pan out. Um, so we pumped up uh, the kayaks. I've got a very cool uh, inflatable kayak that you can pop on your shoulders and, uh, you know, take the train from London. Um, and there's this spot we were, um, the River Loddon runs from Basingstoke uh, right up through to the River Thames where it joins uh, around Wargrave. It's about 28 miles. It's utterly gorgeous. It's got all your kingfishers, uh, you know, all your ragwort not ragwort, but ranunculus uh, that George was talking about, crow's foot and stuff. It's gorgeous. Um, and the Duke of Wellington owns seven and a half uh, um, miles of it on top of owning 30,000 acres uh, across England. Um, and we were going to do a little trespass. And, you know, the Sunday Times were a bit anxious. They didn't want to break the law, but they did not want to break the law. Uh, so, you know, there, there was a tension. We went and uh, like the photographer came along at first and we did all the sort of me leaning on a no trespass sign, uh, looking all sort of Jack the lad kind of thing. Um, and then we got into the kayaks and we took three paddles and oi, um, from the riverbank and like uh, last of the summer wine, two old boys, uh, bailiffs just popped their heads up out of the nettles whatever they were doing there I don't know but their job is fundamentally to hoik people like me off the river uh, and um, uh, they, they came at us uh, very strongly they uh, they just came very uh, aggressively there's there's almost always a very masculine uh, threat of aggression a sort of fronting up a kind of getting in your uh, grill uh, that comes with these things that uh, that just uh, dissolves when you try and report that to the police that are inevitably called. Um, but it was a weird power situation because uh, they I had no rights uh, by the law of this land uh, to uh, to even be floating on top of the Duke of Wellington's land because uh, if you're if you're on top of the land if even if you're hovering it you still have no right to be there and you're deemed trespassing 
Um, but the more they were effing and blinding, the more uh, both myself and the Sunday, Sunday Times journalists realised that this was really not doing them any favours because it was all going to be uh, in a broadsheet paper the next weekend. Um, so instead of what you normally do, I think George told me, is this true? I don't know, George, like uh, uh, his favourite way of dealing with trespassing is uh, A, to say, I know, like, uh, are you lost? No. You're trespassing, I know. And then I think he told me that you just sat down, but maybe I've uh, I've made that up. But um, we basically did that. We just stuck in our kayaks and it was this weird kind of uh, standoff. You know, they, they weren't prepared to get into the river uh, and we weren't prepared to get out of it. So they called their boss, uh, who was a former uh, policeman, big guy, uh, no nonsense, you're off lads kind of thing. Uh, and we stuck our ground. Um, and then finally, it was the estate manager, kind of uh, sort of a Rory Stewart character, like pink shirt, uh, kind of Douglas Hurd hair kind of thing, um, uh, who, who was sort of, you know, very silky, look lads, can't we all just get along? Uh, you know, it's not your land. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, we capitulated because the next step was uh, uh, to, um, for the police to be called. But as I was sat there, it was just after lockdown. Uh, I hadn't been kayaking that year. I would have been kayaking from like April or March kind of thing uh, and swimming. Uh, benefits of cold water swimming, mental and physical health will get on to. Um, I was just sat in Basingstoke train station thinking, what is this magic, this weird magic that uh, stopped us swimming and kayaking in a river, barely even touching, uh, you know, elements of the river that, uh, you know, we get accused of eroding or this kind of thing. And it occurred to me the order that uh, we were presented with these various forms of authority is the, the exact opposite of the way land ownership portrays itself. First of all, you get the Rory Stewart in a silk shirt going, you know, on the estate websites, we've got 30,000 acres, uh, you know, we're sort of, uh, uh, there'll be a drone video that plays over the thing. And, then, and it all looks like their land. It all looks uh, with their marble statues and their toperied hedges. It all looks as if everything's just so. But if you go through that and you step onto the land, then you get uh, the law you get this sort of gruff inevitability of it's just the way it is, mate. You know, that's the law. Uh, and what Karen was saying, like, uh, you know, uh, I found out it was, it was legal or something, you said, but, uh, but it didn't seem right to me, <laughs> uh, which is exactly that. But the law says no, and the law backs it up. Uh, not not blindly at all. You know, the law is a very different beast, uh, depending on if you're a white, straight, cis male like me or if you're uh, black or bi or from any minority group I have no doubt that it would have been a much more uh, precarious situation on, on many levels uh, and that is one of the issues of the countryside that we're dealing with directly in our righttoroam.org.uk campaign um, and then right at the end you get the on the ground situation, uh, you know, where it all started for me was just hopping over some barbed wire so that I'm an illustrator by trade. Uh, and, you know, if there's a fallen oak tree over there, uh, just out of the blue. Um, oh yeah, that's the, uh, that's uh, uh, just outside the Duke of Buclew's land. Duke of Buclew, interestingly, is just cutting down 
40,000 square uh, meters of land to make way for um, five warehouses that the uh, residents of Kettering are doing very something very similar to Karen and the Ilkley residents. They're saying uh, hundreds of people use this, especially uh, during lockdown uh, for, you know, the physical and mental health benefits of, um, of nature. Uh, and you're saying you can cut it down because one of the rights of property is your sabotendi, the, uh, uh, the right to destroy. Uh, commoners of uh, a Kettering don't have a legal right to defend the woodland that they love so much, uh, but they're doing it anyway, just like Karen. Um, so yeah, so you're on the ground and you're just dealt with a, a kind of um, the brutality of it, just fuck off. Uh, and you're like, I, I am, I'm, I'm not causing any harm, but trespass, the laws of trespass, the laws of exclusive ownership, no matter, you know, which deliberately conflate uh, everybody's sense of, uh, a sort of sense of ju justification uh, to private, to privacy, basically. You know, everyone has a right to their own back garden, but the law will deal with you just the same if you've taken a stroll through 12,000 acres of des deciduous woodland, as if you've just hopped over the fence and uh, set up camp in someone's rockery. And that's patently, absurd but what they call it in law is a legal fiction um so over lockdown rivers I, I am utterly convinced uh through the guardianship of rivers through uh you know the final message uh from the amazing riverside documentary that i watched with like my fist in my mouth um the, the, the idea of a friends of group, the idea of a guardians group, an idea that goes straight back thousands of years into Maori culture in particular, um, but also with a far less sort of exoticized or orientalist kind of perspective, goes back thousands of years in English culture to do with the commons. Our rights to access rivers will be won uh, if we step forward and form groups to protect it. Uh, like I have absolutely every single right to roam legislation across Europe, and there are many, uh, says you only get your rights if you act uh, <laughs> towards your responsibilities. Um, you know, and here, and they all come, the Scottish Outdoor Access Code comes with a list upon list of responsibilities that you owe first the ecology of the area, and second, the community of the area, which does include landowners, but does not exclude the locals or the renters, the people that live there, uh, be nice to each other and, uh, um, you know, to the uh, landscape that you're in. So am I, am I overrunning? No, 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 no. I mean, I, it, you've got a minute or two. To... I'll just smash through some stats then. 92% uh, okay. of the land is blocked from public access. 1% of population own half the land. Of those 1%, on average, they all own 10,500 acres, whereas the average uh, rest of us own seven hundredths of an acre. The NHS Forest uh, have estimated that we spend per year £8.2 billion pounds dealing with the fallout of our sedentary lifestyles. So our need to access nature is not just a healthcare need, it's something that the Treasury are now becoming concerned mm. about. We're, we're leaching so much money. Um, 
And of course, the cheapest, the most cost effective, the most practical way that you could encourage people towards nature, such as they're trialing with green prescriptions at the moment, is to open it up. And at the moment, the nature that we are allowed access to, 8% of land, is uh, by and large in, in the peaks in, in very, very distant places from urban populations. Now, the science that's proved how good it is for our mental health and our physical health has also repeated constantly that we can't just, it, it, it doesn't do us any good for our health uh, to kind of drop into nature if we can afford to for a long weekend or a couple of weeks. Uh, we need regular immersion in the phytonicides of uh, deciduous forests uh, for our immune system to be raised for up to 30 days after, after a two hour submersion. Um, we need access to nature on our doorsteps and for that we need the right to roam. Um, so of course, the way people, just final sentence, the way people come at us, the way people say, they say we're vandals, uh, we can't be trusted on the land. Um, and also it's class war. You just want to swim in a river because you don't like the Duke of Wellington. Never met the Duke of Wellington, I don't care to. Uh, but the River Loddon, um, I will exercise my rights uh, to swim in the River Loddon as, as long as I cause no harm. But we're asking one step further. If you want to access the River Loddon, bring a bin liner with you, run citizen science, make sure you're caring uh, for the ecology that you love so much. You're there because you love it. So actively love it. And that's kind of the core message of our campaign at rotterome.org.uk. Nick, thank you. Thank you so much. And it was wonderful to see your, uh, their woodcuts. They were absolutely beautiful. I definitely want to get a print. That was fantastically interesting. Um, now I'm going to come back to George and Franny to just try to sum up. I mean, first of all, why does it matter so much that we protect our rivers? Well, if we fail to protect our rivers, really, we fail on so many issues. I mean, the, the, the little river that we ended with at the end of the programme, it was like a microcosm for everything that's going wrong in the world. You know, this it should be the most beautiful, thriving river and an industry somewhere upstream has completely wiped it out, just totally destroyed everything that's living in it. And, you know, there we were on a balmy July evening when it should have been swarming with life. You know, there should have been all these caddis flies coming off, caddis flies and others coming off, but there was almost nothing at all. There were no fish rising, there was nothing, it was dead. And, and there was something horrific about it. And what was horrific was not just confined to the river. It was like a cipher for what's happening to the world. And it's like, you know, if we don't turn things around very quickly, this is the whole planet we're looking at here. This is what it's gonna be like. And we're seeing ecosystem after ecosystem going down that same route. And we're doing almost nothing about it. And in this country, we have a government which often says the right things, but at the same time, it cuts the budgets of the regulators. It, 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 it fails to ensure even its own laws are upheld and it fails to meet its own targets. In fact, it doesn't even make any attempt to meet its own targets. And, you know, the river is us. We, we, we're in the river. It flows through us. Um, it, it, rivers are, are just such powerful conveyors of feeling. Um, they're, they're, they're a place and they're not a place all at the same time because they're flowing through our lives. And, and we should be able 
to in, in, enjoy them and engage with them without any of the constraints that we've been discussing this evening, without the shit and the sanitary towels that Karen's been finding in her river, without the idiots in Tweed shouting from the bank that, that, that Nick encountered on the River Loddon. Um, you know, we, being able to mess about in a river, to swim, to, to, to play around in, in boats harmlessly, you know, really doing no harm at all, to paddle with your children. This has got to be a fundamental right and our exclusion from them, either because they're too filthy to go in or because in England at any rate, 96% of rivers are closed to the public. I think this is a fundamental human right which is being breached. Yeah, and, and, and there's a great move um, in this country, Paul Pulsland um, and others are, are promoting it to get legal rights for rivers. Mm -hmm. It's already happening in, in um, New Zealand, Aotearoa, um, with, with the Vanganui River, uh, which has got legal personhood, it's got legal rights. Um, you know, we, we should be defending the legal rights of rivers, we should be establishing the legal rights of rivers, but we should also be establishing our own rights to enjoy those rivers. And it's about respect for people as well as about respect for nature, and we're disrespecting both at the moment. So yes, that's that's so true. And I know in Colombia that the Magdalena has been declared a river with rights because it got so desperately polluted. And actually, the government have now instigated the Magdalena's rights. However, it seems that that's kind of not the right way to do it. We shouldn't have to get to that point. I mean, Franny, what what do you want to see now that you've been so immersed in it? What do you want to see happen? I mean, obviously, one thing is we need to have more staff in the in the environmental agencies and more funding. What else do you want to see happen in the Environment Bill, which is going to be law by before the COP in the end of November? Well, I mean, I just completely agree with, with George that it's so fundamental. I mean, you know, if we can't keep our water clean, you know, we're the, we're the sixth richest country in the world or whatever it is, and yet, you know, we're putting shit in our rivers, in the water on which we all depend. I mean, it's like we're, you know, it's like medieval times or something with the open sewers. And so to me, I mean, I just completely agree with George. It's like a microcosm of what we're doing to, to the whole planet. And um, I mean, it's desperately depressing. I, I mean, you, Rosie, you and I, we swim in the river. We swim in the river together. And, you know, those are the most blissful parts of my day, of my life being in, you know, in the river. It's the reason I live where I live. Um, you know, to be in the river. And um, I don't know, I don't know. Um, we have to tackle everything all at the same time, don't we? We've got, you know, the sixth mass, mass extinction and climate change and the rivers, but I don't know, there's something about the rivers that I just think, uh, you know, just to repeat is, um, you know, they're just, they're, they're, the, they're, the, uh, they're the veins, as George says. Um, and, you know, if we can't keep, if we can't clean them up, um, mm -hmm. when, you know, then it's hopeless, but, the, the one good thing about this whole thing is that everybody's on the same size, unlike all the other yeah. environmental issues where you get yeah. some people saying, oh, no, it's good to drive or, you know, blah, blah. Maybe climate change is good because you get grapes growing in Britain or something. Nobody says, no, it's good to, it's good to put shit in rivers. Nobody says that. Everybody agrees. Let's clean our rivers. So possibly if I'm going to end on an optimistic note, if we could clean the rivers, which is, you know, it's possible, then it might open up and, you know, open the doorway for us to tackle all the other problems which are you know just as pressing if not more pressing that's a really lovely thing to say yes i mean george I, i'll leave you the last the last note on this before we close and i say 
Thank you so much to everybody for joining us tonight. Um, do you feel optimistic? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I always feel, I feel pessimistic about what we do and optimistic about what we are. I think we're much better creatures than we believe we are, but our good nature gets suppressed often by the system we get pushed into. And, you know, but we've got these incredible reserves of kindness, of care, of altruism, and of capacity. I mean, you, you look at what Karen's doing. You know, mm. this, this is what we can all do. You know, we have those capacities. You know, Karen's an amazing person, but that's because her amazingness has been able to emerge. But actually, you know, most of us, I think, have got that amazingness in it. It, it got it in us but we're keeping the lid on it we're not allowing that to come out and we're not allowing ourselves to be the amazing people we are and do the amazing things that we can do and if we just have that courage and just you know, be like Karen you know be so you know use the sort of model that she's creating and say why can't I do this if she can do this I could do this you know let's do it for our own rivers so set up a friends group for your own river and we've got the Eden project on board which has been uh, which is mailing at six million people on its mailing list to say you know set up a friends group um, support river action which is um, mm -hmm. of ours on the project which is a, a, a new campaigning group trying desperately to protect our rivers asking for the regulators to be properly funded I mean I would add to that you know like 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 you said and like Franny said you know um, and and the perpetrators to be properly pr prosecuted yeah. You know, including the executives, you know, the, the prosecuting a company and no one learns anything from that. It just sort of disappears into the accounts. But, you know, you have some executives who have deliberately, knowingly poisoned a river in prison. That concentrates the mind. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's start seeing some of that. Um, and, and, you know, let's mobilise and be those amazing people we can be, unleash that people power that we've seen in the citizen science movements, that we've seen in, in the mobilizations of the kind that both Karen and Nick and Peter have been talking about, you know, these incredible things that we can do when we get together in defense of something we care about. George, thank you. That is a brilliant note to end on. And I think everyone's got so many different, uh, I can see Nick just putting into everyone the right to roam, We've got the Rivers campaign. I mean, take a leaf out of Karen's book. I think, Franny, we'll have to start a Clean Up the X campaign on the back of that, because we'll be sort of failing if we don't. So, Peter, thank you so much for being with us. Karen, thank you so much for your inspirational talk and everything you've done to just set people on the right path. And I imagine it was also pretty good fun, because it always is fun when you're in a group trying to do something. And Nick, thank you. And I hope that you get to sail peacefully down the river Lodham, which was a name I hadn't heard before, uh, past the Duke's uh, copious acres without any introduction. And Franny and George, thank you both so much for making this film and for being with us. And for anyone out there who hasn't yet seen it, I can't recommend it enough. And just remember, this is all being done on 12 mobile phones. Fantastic. So thank you and uh, enjoy your rivers. It's still warm and I'll certainly be in the X in the next few days, hopefully with Franny. So thank you all very much and good night.